This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Louis Armstrong. This is the first song I ever played for my little girl. She watched it on YouTube. We'll get to that a little bit later. On this day in history, Louis Armstrong died. And there's nobody who has written more about or written better about Louis Armstrong than the Wall Street Journal's Terry Teachout. His book in 2009, Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, is just spectacular. Pick it up. You can get it for nothing now on Amazon. You won't be able to put it down. It's so beautiful. And he also is a playwright. He reviews plays for the Wall Street Journal. Well, he tried to write one, and it was a great success. And it's called Satchmo at the Waldorf. One of the hardest parts of writing any biography is finding a fit subject. But sometimes they're in plain sight. Despite his incalculable contributions to American life, there had never really been an adequate narrative biography of Louis Armstrong. Why do you think that is? The biggest problem, I think, was that um, it wasn't until after the earlier biographies had been written that Armstrong's private tapes became available to researchers. Um, Armstrong was one of the first people in America to own a tape recorder. Uh, he, he bought an early model around 1947, 1948, and he bought it originally to tape his shows so that he could listen to them and perfect them. But back then, of course, tape recorders were a tremendous novelty. People played with them. And ultimately, Armstrong uh, started using his tape recorder to tape private conversations, not secretly, but uh, he would just leave it running at dinner parties. He would leave it running at the dressing room. He would dictate memories into it. Uh, he would dictate letters into it. And he preserved all of these tapes. Uh, by the end of his life, he had a, about more than 600 reel-to-reel tapes that were full of the kind of material that I'm describing to you. <clears throat> and this is heaven for a writer. It was heaven for a writer, and everybody knew that he'd made these tapes, but everybody also assumed that they were not playable, that they had been stored in the attic. You know, reel-to-reel tapes deteriorate fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, uh, the tapes were all playable. They were conserved by the Armstrong Archives at Queens College. They were digitally transferred to uh, CDs. They were indexed. At this point, they were made available to researchers, and this was the exact moment when I decided to write a biography. So suddenly... I had access to an enormous amount of material about Armstrong <clears throat> that no previous biographer had had, and it made a tremendous difference for me. Oh, my goodness. Writers uh, also, Terry, I believe, try to solve some mysteries. I mean, ultimately, you, you need to be surprised by something or advance the narrative in some way, or why bother writing? Uh, it certainly can't be for the money. That we know. You once <laughs> said that you wanted to know whether the man we saw on stage and on film was the same man off the stage. Yes. Talk about that. I knew that Armstrong was more complicated than he seemed. He, he couldn't not have been. He was a creative genius, and there's no such thing as a simple genius. 
I knew from having met people who knew Armstrong and having read everything about him that I could get my hands on that he had a temper, uh, that it was sometimes quite startling to the people he worked with. Um, I knew that, that he had opinions about people he had worked with, about the world he had lived in, that were quite a bit sharper than what he had said in public for public consumption. And I thought it would be interesting to really try to explore Armstrong's life with the help of of his private tapes and find out whether there really was another Armstrong, a hidden Armstrong, uh, uh, you might say a darker Armstrong. And that was part of what, what motivated me to write the book. And, you know, what's the pro- before we dig into the, the biography itself and the details of his life, what single thing surprised you the most, Terry? Well, there's a sense in which nothing surprised me personally, because I went in knowing an enormous amount about Armstrong. Uh, For me, uh, hearing the tapes was a matter of confirming things that I had suspected. Uh, I mean, there were small surprises, but uh, uh, there was nothing that, that shocked me personally. But I knew that what I was finding, uh, what I was finding additional material to support was really going to be startling to people who only knew Armstrong through his music and through his television and film appearances. The Armstrong that we know from uh, the Ed Sullivan show, if you're old enough to remember him from back then, uh, the guy who seemed entirely happy, just a a radiant son of happiness, uh, was not, he wasn't untrue. Armstrong was, in a sense, really like that. But there was more to him than that. And so I think what will surprise people who read my book and who see my, my play, which I wrote about Armstrong after the book, is to find out that Armstrong was a man with a temper, that Armstrong was uh, a man who could be quite difficult, uh, could be quite dark, uh, uh, had a, a depressive, almost passive side that came out sometimes, um, and for those who have the mistaken notion that Armstrong was some kind of old-fashioned Uncle Tom, the biggest surprise of all is obviously to find that Armstrong was, in fact, a very realistic, disillusioned man who understood the world around him, who knew the score on race relations in the 50s, um, and who was prepared to speak very frankly about these things. Yet none of the things I have just said to you contradict the Armstrong that we do all know, because he was basically, I think, a fundamentally happy and fulfilled man. Uh, It was just that there was more to him than that. And that's what I tried to get at in writing Pops, my biography. And when we come back, we're going to learn a lot more of what there was to this iconic figure. Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, Terry Teachout, celebrating on this day in history... Louis Armstrong's passing in 1971.
Darling, this is Louis. Darling, it's so nice to have you back where you belong. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Terry Teachout on this day in history. Louis Armstrong died. And he came into millions of homes in this country. We're going to talk about in the, in, about that in a bit with Terry. But I wanted to pick up on this idea that though Louis Armstrong was a happy person in general, he had all these complicated uh, sides and aspects and dimensions to his personality. And by the way, Terry, any of us who are fundamentally happy or any of us who know fundamentally happy people know that fundamentally happy people have tempers. They have yeah. a dark side, and that they're human beings. Absolutely, absolutely right. And Armstrong was all of these things. Uh, the people I spoke to who had actually worked with him, played in his band, you know, all talked about how, without warning, he would explode into these red rages of wrath. And then they would go away, you know, like a, like a summer storm will blow out. Uh, but while they were happening, they were astonished. Uh, this was just not consistent with... The Armstrong they thought they knew. I think that really surprised me was how forthcoming all of these people were uh, in, in talking about this. At the same time, these are people who, without exception, said that they loved Louis Armstrong. I have never spoken to or read the account of anyone who knew Armstrong who didn't love him. Uh, he seems to have been that kind of unique personality. I, I sometimes like to say that What's interesting about Armstrong is that he's, I think, a fundamentally good and, and, and fulfilled and happy man who's not boring. There's nothing boring about him at all. You know, he's a larger-than-life figure who lived an extraordinarily fascinating life. There's nothing dull about him. And yet he's a good man, a kind man, decent man, yeah, and a happy man. He's also the first black man that Americans really allowed into their TV rooms I mean, into their living rooms through TV, through the radio, through movies, through magazines. I mean, this is truly the first African-American male Americans knew. Yes, that's quite right, and it's awfully easy to forget. I mean, remember, we're talking about a man who was born in 1901, uh, who became a national celebrity known not just to uh, music lovers, jazz lovers, but to the public at large in the 30s, and who was before the public all the way to his death in 1971. So he's not our contemporary, and it's easy for us to forget just how important it was that he was embraced by people uh, who, I, I think in many cases, white people who had never really had these feelings about a black artist, a black entertainer, maybe not about a black person at all. That's a big, big thing in, in the, the social history, the cultural history of America. You bet. And let's talk about time and place, because all stories, and we learn this in Aristotle's Poetics, we learn this about all storytelling. It's character, it's time, and it's place. So let's talk about place first. New Orleans. It's where his life started. What role did New Orleans play in the shaping of Louis Armstrong's career and life, Terry? Well, it, it was the soil in which he grew. He was born in 1901. He, he liked to say, and I think he really believed, that he was born on July 4th, uh, 1900. Uh, but his birth certificate has since been discovered. He was born on August 4th, 1901. He was born, he was illegitimate. Uh, he was the son of a, of a worker in a turpentine factory who deserted the family. Armstrong used to say on the day he was born. Uh, 
Uh, he was born and grew up in Black Storyville, uh, the roughest part of New Orleans. His mother was a part-time prostitute. Um, he was, in, to put it as bluntly as possible, born in the gutter. Uh, but it was not your ordinary gutter. It was one in which the air around him was full of music. Because New Orleans, not just Storyville, but all of New Orleans, was a profoundly musical culture around the turn of the century. Jazz was just beginning to take shape when Armstrong was born in 1901. So he was, uh, in a very real sense, present at the creation. And... Um, because he was surrounded by music, but also because he was born into rough, rough circumstances, he became the man whom he became, uh, a genius, a culture-transforming uh, musical figure, but also a man who was absolutely determined to get out of that gutter and to lead a different kind of life from the one into which he had been born. And, you know, we had just done an hour on Irving Berlin not long ago, Terry, and you know, his circumstances were remarkable as well. Yes, you know, his, absolutely. His, not, fa his father's gone. Not at gone. all dissimilar, yeah. Yeah, not at all dissimilar. Jewish, back when Jews were not exactly welcome in this country. Talk a little about those kinds of similarities between the two men. I know you know a lot about Irving Berlin. I do. Um, it's interesting, though, until you just mentioned it now. I never, it didn't occur to me to think of the two men in connection. And, in fact, uh, the connection makes very good sense. Um, you know, Armstrong is descended from slaves, people who have been brought to this country in slavery. Um, he's born into a culture that is prejudiced not just whites against blacks, but light-skinned blacks against dark-skinned blacks. Armstrong was very dark-skinned. And interracial prejudice was, uh, it was taken for granted in New Orleans at the turn of the century and for long after that. Um, he had a little bit of musical training uh, at the, the Waif's home, the, the, the orphanage. That's not quite the right word, but it's the closest we can come to, mm -hmm. uh, in, in which he was schooled. But he was, except for maybe about six months of, of, of very basic musical training, he didn't have formal training. Um, and yet, because he was, like Berlin, uh, an untutored musical genius, um, he was like a human sponge who, who soaked up all of the sounds around him and recreated them in his own image. Uh, and thus you have these two extraordinary men who, who come from broadly similar circumstances who took the sounds around them and made out of them something personal that became central to our culture. Yeah, and it's amazing that a Russian Jew gives us God Bless America and White Christmas and what set me off, Terry, on writing about and thinking about Irving Berlin, I had seen a Bruce Springsteen show one day, and he was about to play This Land is Your Land, uh, which, of course, as he explained to the audience, was a rebuttal to Irving Berlin's song, God Bless America, because there were so many on the progressive left who hated that song. And, and in the end, this was Woody Guthrie's ode against capitalism and against private property in the end, Terry, in a very strange way. Well, Armstrong was not a person who had any great political beliefs. Uh, he didn't vote. Um, he never expressed, so far as I know, any specifically political opinions outside of the very particular context of the civil rights movement. Um, 
to the extent that you can see Armstrong as a political figure, it is in his lifelong belief in the power of hard work and self-help to ennoble the poor. And that is something in which he believed devoutly because he had done it himself. Um, he, he wouldn't have put it this way, but he really believed that there were deserving and undeserving uh, poor people who didn't try to, to better themselves, to, to get out of their original condition. And he had something not unlike contempt for people who didn't make the kind of struggle that he made. And of course, you, in looking back on his own life, and Armstrong, as you know, wrote two autobiographies and spent a great deal of time thinking about the meaning of his life. Armstrong, of course, did forget to factor in the fact that he was a genius, and when a genius pulls himself up by the bootstraps, uh, something different may happen. But he knew absolutely that that, that hard work, that uh, Armstrong was not a bourgeois, but, you know, the kind of the kind of belief in, in leading a, a, a solid, respectable life uh, could change anybody's lot in life. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why he wrote his autobiographies and why he uh, wrote other autobiograph- autobiographical documents that were preserved after his life, because he, he wanted to convey to the world the meaning of his own life as a man who had transformed his lot, who had pulled himself up out of the gutter, through formidably hard work, the work of an artist, the work that is necessary in order to master a musical instrument, to, to, to transform a musical language. He believed in these things passionately. And when we come back, more with the Wall Street Journal theater critic and author of Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, and also the playwright of Satchmo at the Waldorf. And again, that's Terry Teachout. And on this day in history... Louis Armstrong died. When you smiling, the whole world smiles with you, baby, baby. Yes, when you laughing. When you're laughing Yes, the sun Shining through Yes, and keep on smiling Keep on smiling, baby And I hope This is Our American Stories And on this day in history One of the 20th century's greatest entertainers And one of the most influential jazz musicians of all time Louis Armstrong died and joining us to commemorate his life, Terry Teachout. No one's written more and better about the man and his life. We were just talking about the politicization of Louis Armstrong. And the fact of the matter is, though Louis wasn't political, Terry, others tried to make him political. Others politicized his life. Well, I think, I think is especially in Gillespie's case, this is, this is a generational thing. 
And it's also the way that people respond to father figures. I have a feeling that that has a lot to do with it. Uh, Gillespie, well, let me back up. I mean, Armstrong came along at a time when he never called himself an artist. I think he understood quite clearly what he was. But he called himself an entertainer. Mm -hmm. And that was his self-understanding. Uh, his his intention was to delight the public in any way possible. He also liked to call himself a ham actor. He, he'd talk about wanting to go out on stage and make people happy by telling a joke. Um, Gillespie, although he was a bit of a clown on stage too, saw himself as an artist and being a, a black of the, the next generation. He was disturbed, I think, I think understandably, by Armstrong's uh, stage manner, which was shaped by the minstrel shows that he grew up uh, in that, in that uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard for a younger person to imagine uh, what the life of an older person is like. Right. One of the reasons why I wrote Pops uh, was to try to show people that Armstrong, in his own time, into his own generation and the next generation of blacks, was seen not as an Uncle Tom, but as a race hero, as somebody who had 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 done great things and was himself quite obviously proud of his own achievements. Um, Gillespie lived long enough to change his tune about Armstrong. Uh, in his autobiography, written toward the end of his life, he said that he had simply misunderstand misunderstood Armstrong. Young people feel like that toward father figures. That's true. And, it, it, and I think it's also, Terry, that in the end, whether it's theater or whatever it might be, the next generation comes up and it wants to prove the last generation wrong. It wants that's to, right. It that's wants right. to make its claim. But it is quite true that there were those who, who never forgave uh, Armstrong because they, they didn't have the knowledge to see him in historical perspective. And all they saw was uh, this... this happy, grinning man who went out on the Ed Sullivan show and seemed like he didn't have a care in the world and a trouble in the world. And that, 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 that was not the way they thought black artists ought to present themselves. Uh, Miles Davis is the, the, the quintessential example here, uh, someone who absolutely saw himself as an artist, who, who was quite capable of treating audiences with contempt. He was famous sometimes for turning his back on audiences in nightclubs and playing for them. And that was unthinkable to Armstrong because he really thought that it was his job and, in a sense, his duty uh, to, to, to bring happiness. He said, I'm here in the cause of happiness. That was what he understood his art as doing. Yeah, and it's interesting that, uh, you know, we're all a product of our times, and at the same time that Miles Davis was turning his back, Bob Dylan was turning his back, and it became sort of popular to sort of deride being popular or being an entertainer, Terry? Yes, I think part of the difference, of course, is that Miles and Bob Dylan are now themselves historical figures. That's right. We see them as figures of the past. And people who read my book or who see the play that I wrote about Armstrong, uh, which is fictionalized but true to his personality, I think are going to understand that this notion they may have of Armstrong as an Uncle Tom is simply not true. It's not true to the history, it's not true to the facts, it's not true to the way he felt about himself. And when you see him in historical perspective, it's, it's very hard not to come away looking upon him as a heroic figure, uh, a genial, wonderful uh, man who appeared in the cause of happiness, but also, I think, a rather fearless person, 
a person who went into the Deep South in the days of segregation, fronting a mixed band, uh, something that was unthinkable. A person who, when New Orleans passed laws uh, uh, preventing mixed bands from appearing on the bandstand in the city, said that he would never again play in New Orleans until that law was repealed, and he didn't. He also wasn't afraid to take on the powers that be on occasion. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower understood that. Talk about that, Terry. No, that was actually the, the only time in which Armstrong did something that really made news in, a, in what you might call a political context was um, in the 50s, in uh, 57 specifically, when uh, uh, Governor Faubus of Arkansas uh, was determined to prevent the desegregation of the public schools after the Brown v. Board decision. Um, Armstrong, in an interview, spoke out quite passionately against what Faubus was doing. And a few days later, as, as history records, Dwight Eisenhower sent in the National Guard to uh, desegregate the schools. I don't claim cause and effect there, but what Armstrong did and said became a front-page story around the world, in part because it was not the sort of thing that, that he was identified with saying, and yet he was quite passionate in, in attacking Faubus and attacking uh, 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 Eisenhower for being pusillanimous, uh, John Foster Dulles, uh, and he was even he was quite profane about it in private. I mean, he called them names that he could that the newspapers couldn't print. Um, this wasn't characteristic of him, but it was the way he felt. And uh, Joe Glazer, his manager, uh, uh, describing what happened afterwards, said, "You know, this just proves that that that, that Lewis is a real man." And uh, that's that's really, especially when you consider who he was, when he was. He was a popular entertainer in 1957, uh, when segregation was the law of the land. Uh, to have said what he said uh, and stood behind it and absolutely refused to take it back, uh, I think was in many ways a genuinely heroic act. Oh, indeed. And the guy toured, what, Terry, something like 300 days a year? I mean, he made his act, he made his living entertaining folks. That's right. That's right. And here's the striking thing. It was not, insofar as we can tell, held against him. Uh, uh, he wasn't bounced off television shows. He got some hate mail about it. But mostly, I think people just realized that this was a, a man feeling justified anger and speaking out about it in a justified way. And it was Louis Armstrong. You know, it wasn't some uh, uh, a rabble rouser. Right. It was the beloved Satchmo who said these things. And that made a difference, too. Indeed, and because he had not done it before and not after, it, that may have, may have been the ultimate difference, Terry. Yes, it really stands out uh, as one of the key moments in the history of his life. And when we come back, more from Terry Teachout, and nobody's written more about Louis Armstrong, or better, Pops a Life of Louis Armstrong in 2009, and catch it if it comes to a town near you, the play Satchmo at the Waldorf. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're going to go out listening to the great, great playing and the great musicianship. And as we'll learn soon, this simple, simple approach to music that Louis Armstrong championed.
give me a kiss to build a dream on And my imagination will drive upon that kiss This is Our American Story And we're celebrating the life of Louis Armstrong Who died on this day in history On July 6, 1971 And as always, our This Day in History Is brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College A great place to study all the things that matter in life And if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will get to you Go to hillsdale.edu and take some of their terrific online courses. And rejoining us for this final segment is Terry Teachout, and he's the drama critic at the Wall Street Journal, a critic at large at Commentary, and he's written Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, that was 2009, and the play Satchmo at the Waldorf. We talked about place, New Orleans, but let's talk about time. If Louis Armstrong had been born... In the hip-hop era of the 1990s in New Orleans, we would have had a very different outcome. Or maybe not. Well, I, obviously, there's no way no, there's no way of knowing. Uh, Armstrong was the right man at the right time, is, is one way to look at it. Uh, jazz had taken shape. He didn't invent jazz. It was a, a completely uh, coherent music by the time he started playing it around, I guess, probably started playing around 1915 or so, uh, something that would be recognizable as jazz. Um, but his genius, uh, which he brought to the rhythmic side of jazz, uh, was electrifying. Uh, he was, in a sense, the very first jazz man to swing in the way we mean the term now, the modern sense of, of jazz's forward rhythmic propulsion. And everybody who heard him in person or who heard his records was galvanized by them. I mean, there were just countless people testified to having heard Armstrong and saying, that's it, I need that, that's what I want to do, that's the way I want to play. Um, very few examples of an artist who single-handedly, by his own example alone, deflected the course of an art form uh, in the way that he did. Um, it's hard to imagine anybody like him coming along 10 or 15 years ago and having that same kind of transforming force. Um, so I think he really was a creature of the moment, but a person who knew what to do with the moment. You, bet. you know, that's, that's really the key, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's not enough to be smart. It's not enough to be talented. Uh, it's not even enough to have good timing. You have to know what to do at the moment. It has to be just a part of you. And it was a part of Armstrong. And it was coupled with this wonderful, engaging personality. That's really an important thing to remember. Um, Sidney Bechet, the great clarinetist and saxophonist, a little bit older than Armstrong, but came up around the same time, uh, was making very much the same kinds of revolutionary innovations in music. But Bechet did not have an attractive personality. He was a, a, a dark, almost paranoid person. He was not a person you would especially want to be like. Well, Louis Armstrong was a person playing music that you wanted to play, living the kind of life you wanted to live, with the kind of personality you wanted to have. That really was an irresistible package. Um, the thing that made the big difference uh, first was making records, which meant that you didn't have to hear him in person. Uh, in order to to feel his genius. And then a little bit later, network radio and movies, uh, which uh, 
brought him to the white audience, which uh, hadn't known about him before. I mean, in, 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 the late, in 1929, 1930, if you were a white person, you would have known about Armstrong if you were one of that rather small number of, of white people who sought out uh, black records, race records, or if you happened to see him on Broadway uh, during the short time that he appeared uh, in the show Hot Chocolates, which was his Broadway debut in 1929. Most people just didn't know about him. But radio, and, and I think above all movies, introduced Armstrong, both the musician and Armstrong, the personality, to the great American public, which means simply by virtue of numbers, the white public. Uh, ben Crosby did that, you know. It was Crosby who had been profoundly influenced as a musician by Armstrong, and who, when he became the biggest thing in Hollywood uh, in the mid-30s, uh, insisted that Armstrong be allowed to co-star with him in one of his very first pictures and to receive above the title star billing along with Crosby. That triggered Armstrong's film career, and it was the film career that made him what we now call a superstar. My goodness, that almost makes him the Branch Rickey in a way of, yes, of there's Louis' some, life. there's something to that. I mean, Armstrong, because of the kind of person he was, sooner or later these things would have happened for him. But, but Crosby, because he was in such a position of power in Hollywood in the early to mid-30s, was able to cut through the crap, so to speak, yep. and say, if you want me, you have to have him. And Armstrong, being one of the most profoundly photogenic people who ever lived, you know, cameras <laughs> loved him. Hollywood took one look at what he was like in front of a movie camera, and they said, we've got to have more of this. You know, there's an interesting thing that you talk about in the book, uh, that his musical talent obviously made him famous. But in the end, it was his personality that made him famous. I was watching a video of my little girl. At the age of three or so, I decided to start introducing her to various recording artists, music, musicians. And I played her a video of Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World, beautifully dressed. The band, as you'd said, was multi-ethnic. It's just stunning and startling. And at the end, I had also taught her the word exquisite. And she said the word exquisite after oh seeing goodness. that. Because that's what it is. It just makes you happy. It makes right. all of us that's happy. Right. What a talent. I, I think I wrote somewhere in the book, he was the sort of person you could warm your hands on. And uh, uh, your, your little girl's experience is exactly what happened to me uh, when I was, um, I guess, nine years old. And I first saw Armstrong on television, on the Ed Sullivan Show, singing Hello, Dolly, which was then a, a pop hit. Uh, my mother told me to come in from the backyard one Sunday night, that I should see this man, that he wouldn't live forever, and that I'd want to see him. And that was, it wouldn't have been the first jazz I ever heard, because my father liked jazz, but it was absolutely the first time I heard and saw Armstrong. And it made a permanent impression on me. I think it had something to do with the fact that ultimately, I, when I became a musician myself, I wanted to play jazz. And decades later, that I, I felt moved to write about Armstrong and devote quite a bit of my own life to, to trying to, to tease out the answers to these questions that you and I have been talking about. Uh, but it was because I saw him on television. Uh, the movies started it, television finished it. Armstrong was one of the very first black entertainers to appear regularly on network television, which began in 1948. And uh, immediately after that, well, that same year, in 1948, he made his TV debut on The Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, 
and became somebody who appeared on Sullivan every year or two after that. Um, those television appearances, they made all the difference in the world. He was already famous. He was already world famous. But television did something that movies couldn't do. You used this phrase a little earlier. Television brought people into your home. Yep. At a time when most Americans had never had a black person in their home. Uh, they had one on their television, and he was one who was, uh, in a word, irresistible. And they didn't resist him. They loved him. Terry, I want to read something from you and get your response. You know, sure. you're a reviewer yourself. A uh, Washington Post reviewer wrote this about Pops, which was the 2009 biography of, yep. of Louis Armstrong. He writes this. Let's propose that the best jazz expresses either the joy or the pain of making music. We can easily list the agonistas, Miles, Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker, Nina Simone. But whom do we turn to for joy? In a pinch, sure. Fats Waller, Art Tatum, Ella Fitzgerald. But to get the biggest pickup in the shortest span of time, I put on Louis Armstrong. He could be crooning Gone Fishing with Bing Crosby or crowing I've Got the World on a String or else blowing the brass off his horn in Dipper Mouth Blues, an explosion of sound so ecstatic as to make the blues impossible. The end result is always the same. I walk away a happier man. It wasn't until I read Terry Teachout's exceptional biography that I realized quite how problematic happiness can be or how heroic. Well, I didn't write that, but I wish I had. No, that was the Washington Post critic, but you know what? You couldn't ask for better words, Terry. No, you, you couldn't, and it expresses exactly how I feel about Armstrong, that there is, there is something heroic in his determination not to be crushed by life. Because look at what his life, not the successes of his later life, but look at what his childhood was like. Armstrong himself said that if he hadn't become a musician, he might have ended up on the gallows. Uh, which I think is just a perfectly realistic uh, mm-hmm. way of acknowledging, you know, how his life might have taken shape. But no, uh, he embraced happiness. He embraced uh, acceptance of of that which we cannot change, and he embraced the go- the gospel of work as a way of transforming and ennobling life. And the result is an art that is in the best possible sense of the phrase, infectiously happy. I really do not see, as this, as this writer says, I do not see how you can listen to Louis Armstrong and not come away smiling. Yeah, I dare people, actually. And, and, and it shows you their basic desire either to not be happy or just be, they're incapable. Some people, as you know, Terry, I think are incapable of being happy. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, including some jazz musicians. <laughs> including some jazz, and some playwrights, and some actors. Terry yeah. Teachout, uh, thank you so much for all this time, and I'm looking forward to getting to see the play. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And this is Our American Stories, and again, Pops, The Life of Louis Armstrong, and Satchmo at the Waldorf, celebrating Louis Armstrong, who died on this day in history, July 6, 1971, a truly unique American character. What a wonderful
This is Our American Stories, and of all the stories we tell here, some of our very favorites are about the men and women who serve our nation in uniform. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear the story of Staff Sergeant Sal Junta, who explained how a T-shirt started him down a path to becoming the first living American to earn a Medal of Honor since the Vietnam War. And by the way, like all heroes, Sergeant Junta is deeply uncomfortable with the term hero. And, well, as he said it, I'm only mediocre. I'm average. And that's something, that humility, is something we hear over and over again from our best, the very best our nation has to offer. For many of our veterans, their time in uniform, both in peace and war, has shaped much of their adult lives. But for the overwhelming majority, their time in uniform is just a part of their lives. They will transition back to civilian life. What happens then? Today we're joined by Jonathan McConnell, a Marine combat veteran who is now president of Meridian U.S., a private security firm that primarily defends merchant ships off the coast of Somalia. To discuss just this topic, we were introduced to Jonathan by reading his excellent piece in The Federalist, quote, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. And Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. You bet. Jonathan, before we start, we like to get to know people, who they are, where they're from. Talk a little about your childhood, your parents, where you grew up, your first job, Give us a sense and give our audience a sense of who you are. Well, I grew up in Alabama, uh, down in Mobile. My parents were high school sweethearts and then um, uh, got married and had my sister and I. It's just the two of us. I'm the youngest or the baby of the family and uh, went to grew up, went to Auburn University for undergraduate. And then after uh, graduating in uh, three years from there, I, it was right during the time of September 11th or uh, just following September 11th. So I decided to join the Marine Corps. Um, decided to, elected to pursue being an officer and uh, went through and became an infantry officer and then um, you know it, at that point uh, lived a storied career I mean I you know deployed twice uh, to Iraq first time on the outskirts of Fallujah and the second time um, right there on the uh, Syrian border uh, near al Um had two completely different deployments uh, the first one was uh, much more kinetic. Uh, our battalion lost 18 Marines, um, and then uh, came back for the second deployment just six months later. And uh, our entire battalion, there was not a single Marine that fired a shot. Uh, so it, that was during the surge, and or just post surge. And, and you're looking at the success of that uh, that time period, and, and the success that the Marines had there in the Al Anbar province. I, I think it uh, speaks volumes. Two weeks after getting back from Iraq, I, I drove through the night or checked out of the Marine Corps in two weeks which I often say is my, probably one of my greatest accomplishments in life, and then uh, drove through the night and started law school the next day at the University of Alabama. Um, that was definitely an interesting experience just because uh, the transition was, was interesting. Uh, going from two weeks earlier, having been in Iraq, even though it wasn't a kinetic deployment, uh, still was definitely interesting. Uh, I would but, say that's a heck of a transition uh, compared to going from college to law school. Yours is slightly uh, more radical in, it, in its differences. By the way, you experienced the fruits of the surge, one of the most underreported and more remarkable achievements in combat history that is now not only not remembered, no one even knows about it. Correct. Yeah, it, it, was, it was truly amazing to watch it go from, you know, I, I think our you look at our worst day, you know, maybe nine significant activities, uh, whether it's being taking mortar fire, IED strikes, uh, small arms fire, to zero. Uh, you know, and, and really that was, even in areas, um, that wasn't just because we it was six months later and several hundred clicks to the west. That was right outside of Fallujah, right outside of Ramadi. 
um, that was because of the surge. And I think it was highly effective. Yep, highly effective. And I think at that point, the media had checked out of the war. Americans had. And regrettably, the soldiers hadn't. And they were winning. And we, right. know, we know that. And sadly, I know that story because we talk to soldiers here on this show. And we don't consider ourselves a part of the media. That's why we call ourselves Our American Stories. We let the folks tell the stories. And we just sort of get out of the way. Tell me why you decided to join the Marine Corps, though, right out of Auburn. And how many other of your peers responded to 9-11 by graduating from a big, big state university and saying, heck, I think I want to join not only the military, but, well, the branch of service that would most likely see combat in a really dangerous place? You know, a lot of it just was a call to serve that I think so many military-age males have, uh, you know, in the United States. I, I almost went to the Naval Academy. I'd pursued that route until I went and visited it one summer, and I was just like, uh, my sister actually was at Auburn at the time, and uh, I spent during the week I went and visited the Naval Academy and saw the, you know, the regime there and, and how rigorous it was and structured it was. And then my sister, afraid of me joining the military, uh, basically told all of her sorority sisters, hey, my brother's uh, thinking about going to the Naval Academy or he's considering Auburn. Let's show him a good time. And uh, I drowned in, you know, 18, 19-year-old, you know, girls who were you know, like, hey, Jonathan, come to Auburn. It's great. You know, and just was spoiled. And I, at that point, never looked back and was like, there's no way in the world I would go to the Naval Academy now. Right. Um, probably one of the funniest experiences of my life. But uh, we had a great time, went to you know, a football game, obviously, and then um, you know, had a great weekend. And at that point, I uh, decided to go to Auburn. You know, we weren't at war then. That was back in, in 1998, 1999. Um, and then I started in the fall of 2000. And then, you know, it always felt like, you know, I'm missing out. And I remember sitting down with one of my Sunday school teachers who was, a, you know, a, just a mentor of mine, and he said, Jonathan, you know, what do you regret in life? And I was like, well, at this point, I don't regret anything. And I was like, well, you know, Rich, what do you regret? And he was like, I'm 55 years old. I regret not serving my country. And this is actually was the weeks after September 11th. He was like, I tried to join and go and, you know, see if they needed a doctor. And he was like, you know, they, they didn't. They kind of laughed me out of the room. And he was like, but, you know, he's like, now, especially after September 11th, that's, uh, you know, something that's heavy on my heart. And, you know, at that point, I was like, you know, I, I feel that too. Um, and, you know, and so at, at that point, I, I joined. Um, you know, a peer group had a few friends that, you know, I went to church with at uh, Auburn that did go on and, you know, one, um, you know, was flying f- uh, fast movers for the Navy and a few that, that did end up serving, but there were not very many. Well, when we come back, we're going to dig a little bit more into your life in the Marines, how the Marines are different than the other branches, not better, not worse, but how they're different. And then we're going to get into the transition away from military life and into civilian life, the real guts and the heart of your work in the Federalist piece, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. We're talking to Jonathan McConnell. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories, Jonathan's story, when we come back.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Jonathan McConnell, whose terrific piece in The Federalist called A Look Inside a Combat Veteran's Transition to Civilian Life can be found. Google it, uh, The Federalist, and put in Combat Veteran's Transition. It'll pop up. You won't take your eyes off it. And uh, Jonathan, before we dig into the piece, what was it about the Marine Corps that drew you in as opposed to the other branches? And how is the Marine Corps, in your mind, different? And again, not better, not worse, but how is it different? You, you know, I think it's, we're a smaller group. Uh, we're, we're more, uh, I think we're allowed to be very selective, but also, too, I mean, I, I think it's amusing. I, I'm five foot ten. Uh, I'm very tall for the Marine Corps. Uh, I think that the Marines produce... You know, we have a reputation of being harder or being, you know, uh, more rigorous uh, at boot camp. And whether that's true or not, I, you know, I've never been to Army boot camp. I've never been to the Navy's boot camp. Um, but I, I think that we produce a fighter, you know, the esprit de corps, just a tenacity that's not often duplicated. Uh, we can be a little bit more selective with our physical fitness standards uh, because of our lower numbers that we have to achieve. But two, you know, I talk about the height. I mean, you know, I'm not a tall guy, especially, you know, when I went to high school, I was a much shorter guy than I am now. And, and you know, I was a giant for the Marine Corps. You look at people that are, um, I think it often, you have uh, a lot smaller people in the Marine Corps because they're feisty and they, you know, may have been picked on a lot in high school and, and they're not going to let that happen anymore. They're going to join the Marine Corps. And, and that tenacity and that, um, you know, that uh, the, the bulldog mindset is definitely there in the Marine Corps, and it's it's something that uh, you see even after the Marine Corps, uh, just people with an edge on them that uh, you know that are out there that you know to win. Yep. And tell us now, give us a story or two setting up this exit from the military. I think we got to understand some of the things you you saw and experienced, Jonathan, as a Marine infantry officer, uh, and your frequent deployments to Iraq. Tell us a bit about just a couple of your overseas experiences. You know, to me, I often say it's the greatest honor I've ever had in my life, you know, to this point. Um, I, I say that cautiously because my, my wife is, uh, is, we are expecting our first child, a boy, uh, in about two months. Uh, so I have to say that extremely cautiously, and I think that will overtake as the greatest honor I've ever had. But, you know, leading American sons into battle, uh, being able to see what these young Marines will do, you know, 18, or actually 17 to 22-year-old kids, men who are out there and who will literally give their life for the Marine on their right or left. You know, I've watched, um, you know, where Marines have literally we start taking small small arms fire and Marines just all of a sudden it's the immediate actions that step in. And you have once, you know, one fire team starts laying down a base of fire while the other two fire teams start maneuvering and you execute fire maneuver where they start maneuvering towards gunfire that just came in their direction. It's the greatest honor in the entire world to see something like that, to lead Marines who are so selfless and who only care about, you know, the, the, the Marine on their right and their left. And uh, to me, that that's the greatest honor I've ever had, um, you know, to this point. And I, I think that it, it's just chilling to even think about, you know, what those guys do and, and how selfless they are. You look at them now, and, and we, we come back into society that we're in now that we're not exactly so selfless. You know, we're uh, it, it's an interesting society, and I think that's why so many guys have trouble adapting. Yeah, I mean, they go from this remarkable teamwork, this remarkable sense of camaraderie, and sacrificial love, let's, let's call it what it is, because in the end, it, they're experiencing this beautiful thing called sacrificial love, and then they get right back out into the real world, and my goodness, a lot more selfishness, a lot more uh, uh, egocentric and centered on the individual. Let's dig into your piece in The Federalist about the transition back into civilian life. You start with these great lines, I'm going to read them to you. 
Two weeks after returning from Iraq in 2009, I was sitting in school, opting to use the GI Bill to earn my law degree. And there I sat, alongside 23-year-olds who spent the last four years partying, sometimes studying, and going to football games. I spent the last four years of my life as a Marine infantry officer. Too many veterans face the same situation. They come home from fighting a war that has been all but forgotten. 22-year-old veterans return stateside from war with the life experience of a 42-year-old. Then they go to college and sit next to 18-year-old drama queens they simply can't relate to. They haven't seen the last X number of seasons of whatever is popular on TV. They're probably wearing the same clothes they wore in high school and could relate better with an 80-year-old Korean War veteran than any college freshman. Talk about that. You know, I, I think I was lucky. Uh, you know, I'm sitting next to a 23-year-old college kid who's at least gotten some of the party out of his system um, and who at least knows they're in a professional school. But but think about that that 22-year-old or that 23-year-old who's now sitting next to that 18-year-old. You know, it, it's there's a reason that, you know, we've almost lost half the Marines from our battalion, or we lost 18 Marines in Iraq. We've almost lost half that many to suicide since we've come back. And it's because you try to get them to transition and understand um, you know, and adapt and assimilate into, you know, the college culture, and and they just can't. Um, you know, they, they we're lost on the social spectrum because we're not going to be able to tell you what happened in the season of office space or office, the office. You know, um, I, I haven't watched TV in years, um, and most of these Marines missed every series that came out. And, you know, and we're still wearing the same stuff from high school because, one, it you know, probably doesn't fit, but I know that every time I deployed and when I came back, um, my clothes, you know, you're like, what happened to my clothes? I thought I stored them here. And you come back and, you know, maybe that box got lost or something like that. And, you know, and so we are kind of uh, SOL at that point. Um, it, it is an interesting transition time. Yeah, and you also note in the piece that the combat veterans' bodies have been in fight or flight mode for months, if not years, and that the production of cortisol in particular which the body produces in, in anxiety, is helpful in these short-term fights. But as you put it, it stays there for long, long periods of time. And people experience anxiety, depression, and sleep problems as a result of this. And by the way, extended exposure to cortisol kills short-term memory and also makes concentration difficult. So talk about the actual combat experience, how it changes you physically, because um, I don't think people are aware of this, Jonathan. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting reading the science of it, you know, in, in going through and, and figuring out. I mean, it took me years to figure out what had happened to my body or what was under, you know, what I understood that had happened to my body. You know, when you're out outside the wire, when you're when you leave the battalion area and you're out on patrol, I mean, you may be outside of the wire for three, four or five days, maybe even a week. And you don't go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, you, you may have to, if you're hydrating properly, yeah, you're, you're probably going to urinate some. Um, but you, you don't, um, you know, fully go to the bathroom or anything like that. And, um, you know, and then when you, as soon as you step inside the wire, I mean, there's a process. You go through and you clear your weapon and you, um, you know, you're, if you're on a mounted patrol, you're dismounting the, we- the vehicles and, and get everything prepped. But literally, as soon as you step inside the wire, it hits you, and your body it starts releasing that serotonin, which relaxes you. And at that point, you're like, "Man, I've got to go to the bathroom." Yeah. And and you'll you'll see an entire unit, a squad, um, you know, that's just like everybody's looking at each other, like, "Hey, we're going to park the vehicles, and then we're all running to the head." And uh, you know, and that's just part of it. It's the relaxation. You know, the the fight or flight mode when you've got that serotonin that's pumping through your veins, and you're out on patrol. You're not going to the bathroom, but you're also hyper vigilant. You're you are 
keenly aware of everything going on because your body is pushing all the oxygen up to your brain so that you can do that, so that you can be more aware because you're in that fight-or-flight mode. You're in survival mode, and your body is instinctually is preparing your, you know, putting all the, uh, the, the oxygen to your brain and to your muscles uh, that are going to be used, not to the digestive system, which at that point is not necessary for survival. And you also point out the hypervigilance that, that is a, almost a habit, the way you're scanning rooms for threats, the way you're looking at almost everything when you're in combat. Well, suddenly you're in law school, and that hypervigilance, that habit, it's got to be off-putting now for you. And how do you explain that to anybody, Jonathan? you got about a minute here. We're going to continue on the other side. But talk about that, the habits you pick up that were helpful as a Marine, which are now, well, maybe not so helpful in a classroom or on a date. Yeah, they don't help much on the date. Uh, they don't help much on in the classroom. And to be totally honest, I wasn't very social. I mean, I, you know, like I had friends and everybody was generally nice to me. Um, but, you know, like uh, I had trouble relating to people or even talking to people a lot of times. And, and so, yeah, you sit in the back of the classroom or you sit in a certain area. You know the, the seat that you're going to have in that classroom that's going to either make you get out of there quickly or keep anybody from having, you know, being behind you. Assigned seating uh, in the classroom would always drive me nuts. You know, but nothing you can do about that usually. Nothing you can do. And by the way, I can't tell you how many people, Jonathan, you know, I, I routinely would go to Walter Reed when I was living in Washington. And, and then when friends of mine would meet soldiers, particularly soldiers who'd been through stressful experiences, they'd always say to me, what should I say? What should I say? And by the way, it, it's not their fault. They don't know what to say. And it, very often they're not equipped to hear what a soldier might have to tell them anyway. And when we come back, Jonathan, we're going to talk about those things and so much more. We're talking to Jonathan McConnell, and we're looking inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jonathan McConnell's story, when we continue. This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Jonathan McConnell and his piece in The Federalist, A Look Inside a Combat Veteran's Transition to Civilian Life, and after serving in Iraq, and my goodness, under the toughest combat circumstances in Fallujah, uh, a not good place to be in Iraq at the time that Jonathan was serving there, and then to, well, not quite as stressful a, a, a circumstance, but always stressful in the end when you're overseas and people are potentially going to shoot at you at any given time. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. I wanted to pick up where we left off. Tell us a bit about insomnia and tinnitus, which, as you say, is a ringing in the ears on steroids. Talk about those two things. 
Yeah, so, um, you know, tinnitus is a, a slight ringing of the ears that, you know, sometimes you can hear, uh, and then sometimes it gets so loud that you can't focus on anything else. Um, and, you know, a lot of times that, that happens at night. Um, it, it exacerbates that lonely feeling that you have uh, and that no one else, uh, you know, can connect with you, mainly because you're, you're the only one who hears it. Um, it that can be uh, an extremely frustrating feeling uh, sometimes, and, and it's... Um, but you know, it's just it's one of those things that you have to manage. Uh, once you realize that that's what's going on, that you can, you know, w- when I finally figured out that hey, no one else hears this, or I, I realize no one else hears it, but okay, hey, um, this is the tinnitus, and you breathe deeply, and you make sure you keep getting oxygen to the brain instead of stopping to think, you know, stopping and stop breathing, and you know, or slowing down your breathing. You overbreathe, uh, and you um, take deep breaths, and just you know, be- become cognizant of what's going on, and that helps you to you know, more quickly cope with it or to deal with it and just saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing this, but I'm experiencing this because, you know, hey, I serve my country and, and no one else can relate to this right now or at least no one else that's in the room with me right now. And, you know, that's okay. It's not, it's not a big deal. But, you know, maybe even step out and try to get somewhere quiet where you're by yourself because there's fewer things that are more annoying if someone tries to talk to you when you're dealing with that and you're like, I can't hear you, but, you know, or it's harder for me to concentrate on what they're saying. So I try to isolate myself and just breathe deeply and just take it, some time to meditate. What about that insomnia problem? Talk about that, because that's got to be combined with this uh, tinnitus. Uh, quite a tandem, I would think, that can really work on the psychology of a soldier. This sound that you, you know is there, but no one else does, and you have to deal with it psychologically uh, forever, or at least for a long time. But throw on that the overlay of not sleeping or having difficulty sleeping, and you can really get into some serious disorders, Jonathan. You can, um, you know, and the insomnia is just something that I, you know, I suffered with for years, and you know, I, I looked at it as an opportunity to treat it more like a deployment. Thankfully, I did. It's not that I never had anything to do. I've always had something to do, uh, so I've I've read a lot. Um, you know, I um, I think it's beneficial not to watch TV and use that as a distraction. So I, I always use my insomnia as productive time. Uh, but yeah, it you know, be three or four in the morning, and I was still studying for law school, or still reading, or working and you know and you go to sleep for two or three hours and then wake up and it's just time to start the day again it can be extremely frustrating it is extremely lonely there's not many people that are still up at that time you know i i found myself often using um you know social media at one point was very distracting you'd be wondering why people are not posting something new at two or three in the morning and i realized like and you're getting anxiety about that and you know and of course at that point, I'd be like, well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to delete all of my social media. There's no point in this. It's a distraction. And using that time just to be productive. Um, and, you know, that helped. But I also know guys who don't, uh, you know, guys who are suffering with insomnia, who, you know, can't sleep at night um, and uh, and who, you know, it's a, it's a time where they spend too much time thinking and they're battling that, you know, battling with themselves. And that's definitely got to be tough. Yeah, and it's tough if you try to medicate it, too, um, because then you get into real problems. There are four letters that describe a condition that includes a lot of what we've been talking about, Jonathan. Tell us about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Folks have heard this term. They've heard the letters. But until I saw what you wrote, I had no idea myself. And I've been around soldiers a lot. It really helped me understand. Walk folks through this, Jonathan. You know, PTSD, uh, you know, I think that it's one of the most diagnosed um, um, things that are out there it has a lot of negative connotations yep. uh, but but PTSD is something that that so many people go through uh, you know if you have a um, you know people who 
you know, or victims of sexual assault, people who are victims of, of just seeing something that, you know, they shouldn't have or that, that it's just a highly traumatic event. And, and they, they go through it. Uh, when you experience those as a, as a veteran, a lot of times there's a lot more negative connotations about it. Um, you know, you have a lot of people who are also, because of those negative connotations, are not even going to get help. Um, I know a lot of veterans who, you know, refuse to get help because they're like, well, if I, if I get diagnosed with PTSD, that could potentially cost me my job if it's a security job or if it's a job that requires them to carry a weapon. Um, some of them also, you know, who are receiving disability for PTSD, which is, you know, in some cases extremely valid, um, they're afraid that the, you know, that they may lose their rights to carry a weapon. I have heard stories of that happening, uh, and I can see where the, you know, ATF could deny someone the ability of doing that if they're um, committed to a mental institution against their will. But often that's not true, and it's a, you know, I think a lot of these Marines out there or veterans out there need to get help, and are often um, just afraid of losing a right like that, which I do not believe they will. But they're afraid to, and so they, therefore they don't get the help they truly need. Yeah, and I also think that, look, it's no accident that a lot of the folks drawn to the military have a sense of uh, testosterone, machismo, and it's also an admission that you need help. And look, we know from the greatest generation, my goodness, you had guys coming back from World War II who never told anybody anything. And they, they suffered from not being able to share and get treated. Um, we did a, an hour on Major Dick Winters, and he was telling a story about how in his 70s, he was simply walking by a house, and a kid was running his hands through a white wooden fence, and it made a racket, and he instantly hit the ground, his heart raced, and he was back uh, in Bastogne all over again, and it never went away 40 years later. Um, so talk about that. Also, what was interesting in your piece is that it turns out PTSD is one highly treatable, but moreover, the RAND Corporation determined that only 34% of patients newly diagnosed with PTSD received minimally appropriate care following the diagnosis. That's crazy. Absolutely, it is. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, how how do oh, I think we're still treating it? You know, you can go to the VA if you can get an appointment. If I'll caveat it with that, um, but two, you can go to a psychologist out in town, and, and you know, and are they capable of actually understanding or, or dealing with what you're dealing with? Right. You know, I, I've actually uh, talked to a psychologist before, and and uh, had gone to talk to him about uh, you know something completely different, just you know, as a just a checkup, and started talking to him about the war, and and literally, and he buckled up and kind of you know, got very defensive and said, we're not here to talk about that. And, uh, and literally he had not dealt with it. And I mean, this guy is a, is a, is a psychologist and just said, you know, we're, this is the scope of what we're talking about. And, uh, and that's outside of it. We're not doing that anymore. And, um, and, and to the point of, I kind of thought he was joking and I kept going and he dropped the F bomb on me and said, we're not effing talking about it. And I was just like, well, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, and some people just haven't. Um, and I don't always think that, Psychologists are the best people to talk to him about it. I think that a lot of it's just, you know, uh, you could get more from, um, you know, joining a Marine Corps League or Veteran Service Organization and talking to them, uh, you know, people who've been through the same thing because they're, they are going to understand. And understanding that, you know, it, you know, a psychologist is not always going to be the one who's going to talk to you about, hey, man, here's the reason that your body's doing this. Uh, some are great, uh, but they are not all created equal either. And a veteran who's, who's been through it and whose body suffered through it, you know, they're going to be able to tell you uh, if, if they'll relate to you, you know, what, what they've gone through and, and maybe help you through it. 
And I think uh, one of the things that's not there for this round of soldiers, my dad always told me, because he didn't serve in Korea, he just missed it, but he was in the Air Force. But he said that VFW and those halls filled with those men, that, that, was their, that was their counseling center. And there were so many survivors of World War II in the Korean War that when these guys gathered in VFW halls, they were able to share with one another in ways, let's face it, civilians just didn't understand. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Jonathan McConnell, his piece in The Federalist, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life, caught our attention. We knew you wanted to hear his story. We were sure of it. And when we come back, you'll hear the last segment in this hour-long story of Jonathan McConnell and his life in combat and then out. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories in our last segment in an hour-long conversation with Jonathan McConnell. And Jonathan, for veterans who have found help for PTSD, there are persistent challenges of what many call grief or survivor's guilt. And those are two reasons why many veterans have trouble empathizing with civilians. Tell us more about that, because I don't think civilians can possibly understand this thing. You know, it's one of those things that I suffered with for years. Um, you know, like when it came to to living, you know, living life and, and, and you know, being up late at night or, you know, saying like, hey, I have an opportunity to live right now, but, but these Marines did not, you know, and especially ones that, you know, that you knew that were under your command and you're just like, hey, I'm doing this for Cliff or I'm doing this for Josh, you know, the, the ones who are out there. Um, you know, you, you just feel guilty for still being alive. And, um, you know, I know one of the hardest moments that I ever had um, was stepping off that bus when I came home. I, I wasn't, I mean, I loved that my family was there and it meant a lot to me, but the whole time it was, you know, the the stress of having to meet the mother of one of my Marines who didn't come home and, and hand her his dog tags. And, you know, she was the most gracious woman in the entire world and, and gave us all big hugs and, and uh, was very, very sweet. And to this day, we stay in contact with her. We annually, we've started doing a, a retreat um, with, where everybody uh, spends a weekend together. And she always comes and is basically she lost one son, but she gained another 60. Um, and, and that's how she looks at it. And she's, she leads us uh, and is you know, it's more beneficial to us than we are to her, I'm sure of it. But, you know, that survivor's guilt is still there. And, and it would be years that I would, you know, just be sitting there and just break down and just, you know, wondering why, why did I make it, but, you know, he did not. And, um, and that's something that, you know, we think about constantly. And it's just it, it, you can't explain it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that, um, you know, I, I'm a believer. I, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian most of my life. And I, I still have not found where God's role is in war. And you cannot explain some things that happen. And you just have to trust that, hey, there's a reason I'm still alive. But to me, 
I use it as an opportunity just to, to work harder and to, to be better and, and live the life that he doesn't get to live. I'm going to live it in his place, and I'm going to work harder and be successful in his place. Yeah, you know, a lot of people talk about a lack of faith or the rise of atheism in the, in, in the 21st century. But people don't understand that right after World War II, this was when the greatest rise of atheism occurred. Because so many people, what a colossal collision with your faith. Why would a just God... Uh, allow 60 million people to die in a conflagration, uh, in death camps, uh, to nuclear annihilation, to, to, to flamethrowers. Um, these are things that challenge any decent person's faith. Uh, Jonathan, talk about that because you saw some things and, and, and probably felt some things about human beings that you just didn't think you were capable of. You do. I mean, well, let's look at the Marine Corps in general. Let's look at the the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. I mean, where does the Marine Corps fall in any of those? You know, patience, tactical patience maybe, self-control, yeah, I'll give us that. We're good at that. Love, joy, um, I don't think so. Uh, so, you know, where do you find God in the Marine Corps? You know, uh, in, it is definitely a, a very uh, – most of the people in there are godly people, but it is very hard to – understand the role of, uh, you know, Christianity or, or whatever your God is in, um, in the core, but then you exacerbate that with war and seeing what you see when you see children who were killed, um, you know, when you, when you see some of the death and some of the destruction and, and the suffering, um, you know, the sounds of war, you, you know, or just the instruments of war, you know, these roadside bombs are, you know, a 155 shell that's exploded. When people pick up the piece of metal that I still have, you know, and I, you know, show it to them, they're like, this is such heavy metal. I'm like, yeah, you know, like, so is the explosion that goes with it. It's a, it's an explosion that you've never felt before. The, the military grade explosives that reverberate through your body, it's, it's no small thing. And, and, you know, where is God in that? I don't know. It was years before I talked to God. Um, you know, I, uh, after losing one of my Marines, I, I did not talk to God for several years because I was so angry uh, that, you know, he took him and not me. And, you know, and it's finally, you know, my fight with God finally ended, and I realized it was going to be okay, and this was m- me, my doing, not his. And uh, But it's something that, that I'm sure there's so many people that go out there and deal with. And, and I remember what finally got it for me was just realizing, like, hey, I'm either not going to go forward with life anymore or, you know, or I'm going to finally talk to God and, and forgive myself and, you know, and forgive God even though he didn't need to be forgiven but literally laid prostrate on the ground and prayed and just for the first time in years. And because, you know, at that point it reached a point where it was either that or, or the other way. So. Yeah, and I think this explains suicide for some people. I mean, here you are talking to us the way you're talking about, that you were looking at a fork in the road, the literal to be or not to be, Jonathan. I mean, that's where you were. Yep, absolutely. And let's, let me read something here that I think is a follow-up. You wrote, wrote in this, To the families and friends of veterans, my advice is to shut up and listen. Importantly, don't ask questions you can't accept an answer to. If you ask what the worst experience a veteran had was, which is not a question I advise asking, don't gasp and look at us like we just kicked a puppy. It's war. It's hell. It happens. Don't damn us to live it in perpetuity. Talk about that. You know, yeah, I've been asked numerous times, you know, about the war, and it's, you know, we're not a we're not a toy. You don't sit there and put us on the ground and press play, and so many times that would happen. 
And, um, you know, and whether it was a, a family get-together and someone asked, you know, hey, what was the best thing about being in Iraq? And I just kind of looked at him and, you know, and I was still dealing with the death of a Marine. And I was just like, what the hell do you think was the best thing about being in Iraq? I don't know. Like, I got toilet paper? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, the days that, that a mail would come and we would get wet wipes. I mean, that was pretty amazing. You got to take a bath then. Um, and, and so that was something that, you know, we struggled with. And then some people, you know, for some odd reason, the first question they would ask is, did you lose any of your Marines or did you, did you ever have to kill anyone? And, you know, and, and often you would just say, you know, hey, uh, you know, you just tell them one of the worst stories you could come up with that you remembered. And then at that point they would look at you like you just kicked a puppy or that you, you know, clubbed a seal right in front of them. And you're like, well, hey, you asked. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, the times that I've ever opened up to talk about it voluntarily is usually it's on my terms. You know, if you're just hanging out with people that you love, that know are going to love you regardless of what you tell them um, and how atrocious it is or whatever, and you tell them about it and you hope that they don't look at you and you're just like, oh, that's horrible. Um, did you just say, you know, the response you want is like, hey, thanks for telling me that. I know that was tough to deal with. Not, um, we don't need people to tell us how horrible it was. We know. We live with it every day. Um, you know, but just um, instead of responding and saying, like, that's awful. How did y'all do that? Or how could y'all do that? If you understood the scenario that that evolved around it, it's it's not easy. Yep. And 18 Marines from your battalion were killed in action in Iraq. 18 but suicide has prematurely claimed almost half that number since returning home, Jonathan. That I found extraordinary. So you lost nine of your comrades to self-inflicted injuries and death. This has to be as painful or in some ways more painful than the 18. And I don't want to weigh the balance because it's all painful, Jonathan. But to know that they came home and survived and then couldn't make it. My goodness, what a thing to weigh on all of you. Well, Lee... Yeah, and so go to one of those funerals with us, you know, and and I'll just take you through it, you know, through a story. But, you know, the last funeral I went to uh, was last summer, and with one of the Marines who had um, who had essentially drank himself to death. You know, you look around at the maybe 40 of us that went to that funeral, and you're like, okay, well, who are the survivors still? You know, we're all still survivors, and who are going to make it, or who's next? You know, and you look around, and you're like, you know, I can picture those three as being next. Or, or how's this person doing? And it's a great opportunity for us to kind of check ourselves and to reach out to each other, and you know it's beneficial. And But there are some of the guys there that you're like, I won't be surprised if within the next year I get a phone call that, that he's, he was the one who was next. And, you know, and so we try to reach out to those guys, and we try to get ways to get them to come to our reunion and, and to talk to people. But, but some know that's what we're doing, and so they, they keep us at an arm's distance. You know, it's a struggle that we fight every day. I can tell you that I've, I'm in a great spot. Haven't been in a better spot, I don't think, before in my life right now. Just happiness, especially with a little boy coming and being married, you know, love life. Uh, but I'm looking at some of the other Marines who are just really struggling right now. And, um, you know, and, and we try to check in with them, but it, it's just tough. And what's an answer policy-wise? You're talking to the President of the United States right now, where you got all the congressmen, and they're going to do whatever you tell them. What's one thing you tell them to do? For the for the boys, for your com- boys and girls, the comrades in arms in Iraq and Afghanistan, what's the one thing you tell them to do? Besides resign, uh, just kidding. No, uh, <laughs> uh, I was just good opportunity for term limits there in Congress. Yep. But yep. Um, you know, I, I'd say if anything, come up with the voucher program that allows them to um, to to get the care they need. Even the VA admits that they're broken. You know, you, they. Instead of calling the one eight hundred number, or instead of calling, you know, whatever the standard number is, the the VA hospital that you know that 
that I've the ones that I've been to gives you a separate number that is a direct line to them because they know that hey don't get co- caught in the phone system the federal system because it's gonna you'll never get to, through to us here's a number you can call and but you don't ever get access to that till you get in until you get that first appointment or even to the c- appropriate appointment and so these these guys aren't getting help and so getting them a, a voucher to where they can go to the hospital or a, a psychiatrist that's you know, five miles away as opposed to 50 or 70 miles away. Uh, I think that would be a, an easy prescription that's that's fixable much quicker. Yeah, and a choice system, if anybody deserves choice, it's our, it's our combat veterans, uh, period. And I think Americans would rally around that. Jonathan McConnell, his article in The Federalist, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. And Jonathan now is the president of Meridian U.S., a private security firm, that primarily defends merchant ships off the coast of Somalia. Still doing some pretty dangerous stuff, but married, expecting a boy, and moving on and living just a great life. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, thanks for having me.